in our studies in Second Corinthians, <clears throat> we've seen uh, quite a uh, personal side of Paul. Today is no exception. And as you see, the title of the message is Exposing Distor Distortion and Disguise. The reason why Paul is doing this is to defend the absurd criticism and accusations that he had from the false apostles, the intruders from Jerusalem. And <clears throat> incredible thing is, as I meditate on today's passage, this is as relevant as any current person could write. And such is really the power of God's word. Let's give a little quick review, I mean overview of today's passage in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 15. The pa passages prior to this, we heard a lot about boasting, two different types of boasting. And then he actually, Paul, goes into this chapter. At this time, the key words are fool, foolishness, and foolish. He's about to start what he calls a fool's speech. Allow me, bear with me. He begins in verse 1, a little foolishness. And he uh, doesn't really go into that full-blown, full speech and boasting about uh, things that he feel really not an apostle's way of doing it. So he takes about 15 verses to preface of his speech, his Foolish boasting. Just to mainly to clarify his motive and his reasons. The first one is just that. It is to clarify Paul's motive for his full speech. And we will get to know this motive fuller in a minute. Uh, it is to present the Corinthian Christians as a pure bride to Christ. Secondly, Paul's reason for this prefacing his full speech is not for himself, but for the sake of the gospel. Gospel was at stake. That's why he was compelled to defend himself in a foolish way. And thirdly, it is to expose the distortion and disguise of the false super-apostles. And fourthly and lastly, in so doing, Paul uses four tools to expose what is distorted and disguised. And that's the moment that as I uh, meditated and observed these Four things, 
There seems to be a lot of things going on. But I, I want us to think about what are the things that Paul's using to expose the distortion and disguise? And how does it use it? And we will come away with very practical, powerful lessons, I believe. Because even to this day, um, the problems that Paul was facing or Corinthians facing false spiritual leaders and teachers and uh, evangelists, prophets, whatever they called themselves, are rampant everywhere. And it, when we think of the fact that yeah, of course, I agree there are false teachers. But we might think of ourselves as, I, I mean, I'm immune to that. I'm too smart for that. But today's passage reveals a lot of things that we might not really fully aware of. In, our, in other words, it's so close to home. At least some of you who have experienced your relatives, your loved ones getting exposed to uh, the cultic movement, and this is so close. Because most cults or the false teachers tend to use scripture and distort it just a bit. And that was exactly what was going on. And stylistically, they appear to be super. Like Paul is ironically and a little bit of a sarcasm using that. He thought of those apostles were superlative. They're, they're just very externally showy and uh, incredibly... looking powerful guys. So with that in mind, let's ask the question again. What are four, four tools Paul is using and how does he use it in exposing distortion and disguise? Here's number one. The first tool that he's using is divine jealousy. Uh, and how does he use it? Choose sincere and pure devotion to Christ over duplicious mixed devotion to many. Look at verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So when you hear the word jealousy, 
Nothing good comes to our mind usually. You've seen jealousy in others. How ugly, how intense, how obsessive that might be. And you've seen your own feelings when you felt jealous about something. And that's not good. So when it comes to this, Paul is using, I feel, not my own jealousy, but divine jealousy, God's jealous for you. We need to get this clearly understand first. God's jealousy, number one, is not like ours. God's perfectly pure, righteous character when he's jealous, he's the only one who could be jealous this way. This, let me tell you what I mean. When God created human beings, you and me, he created for the best plan for us. That God-centeredness is our best way to live, and he, was, he designed to, uh, for us to live this way. But outside of that would be false way of living, hurtful way of living, and self-destroying way of living. So in other words, um, when God cares for us, His fierce love for us is for us to enjoy him forever and glorify him forever. Like a bride stays faithful to the groom. And like even in husband, husband and wife, the little bit of glimpse of understanding can come from. For example, remember the day that you were married and you were so in love with your wife and your husband and you promised each other for better, for worse. Till death do apart, us apart. I will love you forever. In my lifetime, you will be the only one whom I love and whom I would be faithful. And things changed over the years and your wife is not only socially uh, flamboyant but blatantly having affairs with others and then you said I'm not a jealous person that's not true love Because it, it, that exclusivity of oneness requires us to faithfulness to each other. No matter how the worldly people undermine the sacredness of marriage, by nature we know when we are falling in love and deeply in love with someone, in that exclusivity, sex is the reason why within the marriage also too. Sex is also sacred. And when that happens, we know 
that I belong to her and she belongs to me. And this is a pure love. And for us to stay faithful is the purest way of loving each other. And Israelites were um, drifted away from God, worshiping idols. It was portrayed all through the, New, uh, the Old Testament as the wife who's drifting away from husband and unfaithful. And Hosea, prophet Hosea, was asked to live out that kind of life. That his wife was unfaithful. She, she, she would just run away and having another man. And Hosea would not let her go and pursue after, after her. And God is giving him example, object lesson. Hosea 6.4 from, from the word of the prophet Hosea, God speaks his jealous love. What should I do with you, O Ephraim? What should I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Ephraim was, uh, you remember that Joseph's one of the son, two sons that he had was Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim was often representing the tribes of Israelites, because Joseph being the leader. And Judah is a tribe of Judah from which uh, Messiah came. Jesus was tribe of Judah. When you think about this fickle love, those of us who sense remorse of because of our unfaithfulness, or those of us who had aching heart because of someone's unfaithfulness feel just a tiny little bit of pain. The salvation in a book, big uh, spectrum, big picture, what God is doing is send his son and to be the groom for all the people who are being saved. And on that day, we will have a marriage banquet. The Christ groom will receive the bride, every single Christian in the world, Christ followers. The church is his bride. In Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27, We, we read this to today's passage in a very uh, radical way because, as you know, the chapter 5 is all about marriage and husband's duty and wife's duty. 
But we know the glimpse of this design, design actually came from the church's relationship with the bride's relationship with Christ. That our human marriage is a temporary state of that exemplified and signifies the eternal marriage with Christ. So that's why the, the beginning part, husband, you should love your wife as, I, I deleted that, for, for, for not because that's not important, but because for us to pay attention to this. Listen to this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the, word, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. One of the most distinctive moment, the unforgettable moment that I had on my wedding day. I'm standing and Kate's coming in with her dad. And by this time, all the stress is about the wedding prep and all those conflicts about who's going to do what. I just let that go. And that was the moment it, I couldn't believe this was happening. And Kate's dad present her to me. I, 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 you know, this is a time that I really um, <coughs> miss not having daughter. So we're supposed to have a three but I really wanted a daughter and to try one more if you came. So you're so another son. <laughs> so if your father, imagine that, I, I know Chang, you, you're going to do that soon. You present your daughter, and that's the part here. Present your daughter with this just careful heart of that she is unblemished, without wrinkle, without spot. And that was Paul's heart. What was going on with Corinthian church? They were drifting away. They were thinking about so many different things. And their simplicity in loving Christ has become us on a back burner. So let me go back and read that what how he is using the tool. Paul's urge is to choose sincere and pure devotion to Christ over duplicious mixed devotion to many. You know what that means basically? There's only one simple thing in our Christian life that should be the main thing. What is that? Many of us used to share that way. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with one whom, who loves me, 
Christ loves me. My personal relationship is the way I live my Christian life. It is not rules. It is not list of do's and don'ts. It is not rituals. But it is the relationship with living person who is Christ. Paul is saying, back to the simplicity here. And this is the message that we need to hear. And I'm grateful that we are just, we have an abundance of resources and different things going on in our Christian life. But what is it that should be most simple in our Christian life? Our intimate relationship with God. Our intimate relationship with Christ. Go back to that divine jealousy again. As a husband in love, in married, on that wedding day, that glorious devotion that we used to have, And having lived more than 20 years with, 21 years with my wife. I want to, con- I want to confess, there's so, so many things changed. But one thing have not changed, and one thing will not change in my own commitment. That I will renew my commitment to love her every day. That's a simple thing. The question is, is your life focused on the main thing or many things? Have we become so savvy that we somehow graduated from having intimate relationship with God, those are the new Christians. I used to feel that way. I used to feel that gospel song, worship songs are about me, and Bible became so relevant to me and sweet to me. But give it a few years, you're not going to feel like that. That's the same thing happens, isn't it? As cynical people who, you know, husband and I, wife living together for 20 years or 30 years and to, to the young married couple we would say I'll just give it a year you will come to the realization the reality is that it will be better for you to have a separate bed or better yet separate rooms give each other freedom Let's go back to the main thing and keep things simple in our Christian life. So that everything that we do points to that main thing. Uh, Getting up in the morning, having quiet time, 
not because this is rules and do's and don'ts, but because you want to spend time with a person that you love. And you want to grow love, deeper love. You come to church and you participate in, in worship because you want to continually renew your commitment and loyalty to God and to the Lord who is the one and only Savior, one and only God. Second tool he's using is true gospel. And how he's using is that his urge is choose substance over style in following Christ, not the other way around. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaimed, or if you receive different spirit from the one you receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to, those, to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plan, this plain to you in all things. The false apostles came with this grandeur their fancy oratory skills. Uh, they had a sense of presence and charisma. And they know how to motivate the crowd. Uh, you know, such words like dynamic speaker, incredible speaker. Paul, on the other hand, didn't have much of that. And even more so, Paul chose not to use the skill sets he used to have as an educated man in order that they might see the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. See, he made everything plain. Oh, this goes on every day in our, in our world, isn't it? So-and-so is a, such a dynamic speaker. I love to hear him. What's the truth you learn? I don't know, but it's good. I feel really great, inspired. Tell me one truth you learn about God. I don't know, but I feel inspired. Such was the case with Corinthian Christians as well. Now Paul feels somewhat reluctant going into this. Why? Because this whole thing was not about him. If it was about him, he'll just let it go. But it was about distorted gospel that they are bringing. So in, in some sense, that goes on in the mentality of our even evangelical world. Uh, why, why do you become so critical? 
they share good things, isn't it? And they are sharing positive things. But it has a lot to do with disguise that comes later. But what Paul was thinking, there is no such a thing another gospel. If you do not hold on to this gospel, you will be damned. Because of that, you need to pay attention to the substance, which is the truth, not the style. And that includes me. And some, some um, young, young people in our church came, uh, can you do this and do this? And there was a um, stylistic suggestion. I said, I, I could do that, but I, I think I'm not good at that. But the really truth is, even the most boring speaker will come. Do we ever hear years to hear the truth of God? Or are we so gullible that we like the speakers who make things palatable to our taste, who entertain us in some way? And I still remember growing up I, um, in our church. A lot of times um, when I know God spoke to me, I didn't think about illustration. I didn't think about the pe- uh, preacher. I didn't think about anything else. But what God has convicted me lingered. Even to this day, some of the messages I heard in my heart. God's word has a truth. And somehow, this very uh, postmodern culture that we make everything more convenient and more relevant to us. And I hear to present the word of God is God's word doesn't need our help to make it relevant because it is the truth and eternal truth. My paradigm shift in this church after previous ministry was render some side effects. One of those side effects that it made me fearful is whenever I come, come up here to speak I feel fearful. When I, and I thought, when I think about what was a good sermon and what was the good message, people's response, how that made me feel, whether it's affirmed or, or criticized or whatnot. But I feel afraid, no matter how much of good illustration I might have, story I have, it's powerful. But I feel afraid whether I will be faithfully delivering the word of God. Without twisting it, without distorting it, without making things more palatable in a way.
in Galatians in 1, 6, 8, in a, an, another um, church setting, Paul said the same thing, but in a more stronger way. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a di different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who travel you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we, we, we preached we preach to you, let him be accursed. So because of true truth and the true gospel, we ought to be alert, mindful, discerning, critical in our thinking. Tolerance when it comes to truth is deadly. But tolerance is everything in our culture, isn't it? Number three tool Paul using is genuine. He uses it to urge the Corinthians to choose him, choose hum, humble self-refrain over prideful self-assertion in serving the Lord. Humble refrain over prideful self. Assertion, assertion, what Paul was doing and what Paul, the false apostles doing. Verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches. He's being sarcastic and ironical here. He's basically I might have asked for support, financial support from other churches, and he used that as I robbed, not literal sense, right? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Caia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. The reason why Paul is not Receiving any support was, in the, back in the days, what was common was this oratory teacher, philosopher, or, or a speech person will come and charge people to listen to him. And that was common of the day in Corinth. And when Paul came, Paul didn't want the gospel of Christ be treated the same as one of those philosophies, Greek philosophies. So he decided to not to receive any support, and he made tent to support himself. When he was in need, he would rather go to other region to ask for support. And he got accused. 
You know why? He's not a really qualified apostle. That's why he's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't ask you. Or he doesn't take the support from you because he's cunning. He got the better of you. He's deceitful. Those are the accusations from the Paul's, Paul's apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 15 through 17 clarifies a little more. He says, Paul says, I will not gladly spend, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Oh, Paul. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and God the better of you by deceit? Did I take advantage of, you, advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I sent to you? Paul loved them so dearly. He actually sacrificed and he was accused for that. And by saying all that and having genuine love, he's saying, He's urging, could you choose humble refrain? Sacrificial way of living, in other words, rather than prideful American way of asserting yourself and standing up for your rights, demand your office and your title and your raise. And I say it in a uh, general way, but that spirit happens even in church setting. Apo these, these false apostles charge them enormous amount. Why? Because they qualify themselves as the speakers of God and no one can, can judge them. And their fee was obviously much high. Even to this day, in Christian world, that there are speakers who are coming with that kind of attitude, asserting way. And they're good delivering oratory skills. Let's give heed to Apostle Paul's urge. Let's choose a humble way, a self-refraining way in serving the church. And even as little as doing the lunch rota rotation and in your heart or so and so didn't do much or in your, in your home group uh, dinner rotation too. The humble refraining way that you do not, you do not insist the fairness and equality and your rights There's another potluck coming up. This is a beautiful way to apply. Number four, and the final one, truth-telling. By truth-telling, he urges us, as well as the Corinthian church, uh, to choose keen discernment 
over gullible susceptibility in following spiritual leaders. Verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continually do, continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In Jeremiah, similar situations were going on. And uh, through the prophet Jeremiah 23, 16-7, the Lord himself says this, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Does this sound like a lot of people these days? First John 4.1, we're admonished. Beloved, I do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out of into gone out into the world. So when we look at this, this is what I meant by we don't have the full picture. We're not closely examining things. Because at the mindset, forefront of mindset, a typical Christ follower is false prophet or false teacher or the people who are evil, has evil spirit intent, intention, has somehow appearance of devil. The disguise, I mean, that Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. You know what that means? The false apostles, the false teachers, false special leaders look like me. Or whoever you think a very spiritual person who is faithful to the word of God comes with inspiration and grabs your attention and says, this is the word of God. This is, I have the revelation from God. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like positive, very in line with our culture. Be very careful. That's why we need to develop, cultivate keen discernment, rather than being gullible or, or being susceptible in, in those things. The prosperity gospel tea preachers that have the largest churches in America. The hipster churches On stage, 
they shine. I can never compete with those people. But they are na- their names are celebrities, isn't it? But Paul, but isn't it, isn't it really good that they're just serving the Lord? Do you look at the truth? Or are you being gullible? I want to go back to the very first point we started with. The simple, sincere, pure love for Christ, devotion for Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote this um, 1940s and 50s, it sounds like as if he wrote this yesterday to the churches in America. He writes, as life in general becomes more and more complex, so religion tends to be affected in the same way. In the secular world, the life today has become involved and sophisticated. In every direction, one sees increased organization and multiplicity of machinery, bustle and busyness. Conferences and conventions are the order of Today, never has the life of the world been so complicated. The simple truths are being ignored, and men spend their time in holding conferences to explore their difficulties. The same tendency is seen in the world of religion. It seems to be assumed that if the affairs of men are so difficult and complicated, the affairs of God should be still more complicated because they are still greater. Hence comes the tendency to increase ceremony and ritual and to multiply organizations and activities. The fact is that we get further away from God. Life becomes more complicated and involved. We see this not only in the Bible, but also in subsequent History. The Protestant, Protestant Reformation simplified not only religion, but the whole of life and living in general. The true religious life is always simple. Examine a flower, you will find that the basic pattern of nature is always simple. Simplicity is God's method. Brothers and sisters, there are so many important things around us. And even Christian things. And the activities and Christmas is coming. It could fill our schedule with busyness and bustle. But only one thing. One thing. Should remain main thing in our walk with Christ. So in this Advent season, I invite you to simplify your schedule in life and focus on your relationship with Christ. And there are many things you might not do well, but if you do one thing well, you're going to be all right. And you will enjoy God's presence 
in the fullness of his presence. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your uh, word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And forgive us for our distracted mind, our fickle heart to many different things. And keep us simple. We have sincere, pure devotion to Christ and Christ alone. Teach us to turn away from savvy, self-assertive, culturally relevant way of living Christian life. We submit, fall flat on our face, declaring, Lord Jesus, you are our Lord. Everything we do and we are belong to you. So come, Lord Jesus, in your Holy Spirit, fill us in this Advent season with your newness of intimacy, the secret of our love for you and your love for us. So we might live out the joy, pure joy of the Lord in everyday life, no matter what circumstance might be. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.